here's the proper way to sing happy birthday to anyone. And you'll hear that version at any respectable black birthday party. But Stevie Wonder's 1980 song is about a specific person's birthday. But you know, black people, we love a good song and we love some Stevie Wonder. That's Dr. Chrissy Greer. I'm an associate professor of political science at Fordham University. I'm also a political analyst at the GRIA. Unfortunately, so few black people of, say, our generation know the origins of the song, right? The song has just now become, at, at a birthday party, we sing the traditional after birthday, and then if you got some black people at the party, we kick it into the Stevie Wonder version. But I don't know if a lot of people below, say, the Generation X age group know the origins of that song. Stevie's happy birthday was a critical part of the decades-long battle to get Dr. King's birthday enshrined as a national holiday. And the song made a difference. That song was absolutely integral to that holiday being established. That's Jelani Cobb, a writer for The New Yorker and a professor at Columbia. What happened, what Stevie Wonder did with that song was put him at the front of everyone's minds. Not only is it a tribute to Keg, but it is infectious, it's catchy. I really don't think that there's anybody on par who could have moved that song, uh, moved that struggle for the holiday over the goalposts, over the goal line. Stevie cared deeply about making the King holiday into a law. He was close with King's widow, Coretta Scott King, and he was part of several marches on Washington pressing the issue. A world that gives every man, woman, and child a respectful job, absolute peace, and sincere and just freedom. I'd like for all of you to please join me urging the U.S. Senate and your senators in particular to vote yes on S-400, a bill to make Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday. In the liner notes for the album that Happy Birthday was on, 1980's Hotter Than July, Stevie wrote, it is believed that for a man to lay down his life for the love of others is the supreme sacrifice. Jesus Christ, by his own example, showed us that there is no greater love. For nearly 2,000 years now, we have been striving to have the strength to follow that example. Martin Luther King was a man who had that strength. I and a growing number of people believe that it is time for our country to adopt legislation that will make January 15th, Martin Luther King's birthday, a national holiday. Why is this cause so important to you? In my, in my thinking, outside of giving a day to a man who died for the principles of this country, it would be a day for us to reflect upon our responsibility as human beings, as recognizing all of those who have lived and died for the principles of uh, peace and unity and equal equality for, for all people. Stevie was deeply invested in making Dr. King's birthday a holiday, and he was an important part of why the years-long movement to get the holiday enshrined worked out. Stevie made a nice, sweet pop song that fit with the image of King as the Prince of Peace. But the imperative to have a King holiday grew so deep that as the political battle lingered on, even after the president signed it into law, some people grew angry and offended and an entirely different song about the King holiday emerged from Public Enemy and Chuck D. Everybody called Martin Luther King the Prince of Peace. If he saw that video, what do you think he would He'd have, he'd have been upset at seeing himself get shot, first of all. <laughs> and, I think, and really, both Stevie's song and Public Enemies fit with the way we see King today. 
What corporations and many of our white friends align with is King as nonviolent no matter what. Even when King was physically attacked, he just turned the other cheek. To them, he represents the acceptable way of protesting against racism. This imaginary king is the zenith of the good Negroes. White people like Ronald Reagan capitulated to giving King a holiday almost as a way of saying, this is the ideal sort of black person. Be more like him, nonviolent, colorblind, not scaring us, not making us feel guilty. But if that's who you think King really is, then you aren't interacting with the real King. The real King was anti-capitalist, deeply critical of America, and extremely pro-black. But now we are dealing with issues that cannot be solved without the nation spending billions of dollars and undergoing a radical redistribution of economic power. Yes that we spend $322,000 for each enemy we kill in Vietnam, while we spend in the so-called war on poverty in America only about $53 for each person classified as poor. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white. It's always something pure, high, and But I want to get the language right tonight. to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, yes, I'm black, I'm proud of it, I'm black and beautiful. The real king is much more complicated for white America to worship, also because of this. Even though he was lionized after his life for being nonviolent, during his life, his nonviolence was repeatedly met with violence. He was attacked. His supporters were attacked. The FBI spied on him and tried to pressure him. He was murdered. So if King is exemplified for being nonviolent, it's easy to see the real message as, nigga, even your nonviolent protests will be met with violence, with threats, with clubs, with wiretaps, with bullets. This is Being Black, the 80s. I'm Torre, and this is a look at an epic decade through the lens of some of the great songs of the era. Not necessarily the best songs, but the songs that speak best to the issues that shaped the 80s. This time we dive into Dr. King and two very different songs inspired by the battle to make his birthday a national holiday. Stevie Wonder's song about Dr. King is a lovely tribute that could be played at any family gathering. I don't have a clear memory of a lot of the details of like who was in the room and what was being said and stuff, but I do have a recollection of, of how important it was to Steve. That's Lon Neumann. I'm honored to have been part of the team recording Happy Birthday on Hobbit in July with Stevie Wonder. Martin Luther King, was was gone at that point and he really 
that really that was really disturbing for him for for all of us really but to, but more to the point to him and so having a, a national holiday and celebration of Dr. King's birthday was really important to him i do remember it taking <laughs> A long time because he wanted to get it perfect. That's Gary Adante. He was the lead engineer on the song. I engineered Stevie Wonder on Happy Birthday and the whole album Hotter Than July. It wasn't like one session. We recorded it several times in several keys, as I remember, speeds. We would finish whole tracks sometimes, but and then he would ask some random person, you know, what do you think of it? What do you think of the speed? And even if it was somebody who had just walked in and somebody said, you know, I think it could be a little slower, a little faster, we would re-record it. (laughs) Not just that song, but any song. But Gary said with this song, Stevie came into the studio with a clear image of what it should sound like. I want it to be fun and obviously happy, (laughs) sing along, and to make it sort of a joyous thing. I knew that he had a vision, he told me, that about that Martin Luther King's day would be a holiday, and he was going to make it happen. He had this inner vision that he saw it as a holiday and that he was driven by the fan. The song was one of the key salvos in trying to make King's birthday into a holiday. There's not a lot that an entertainer can do to change the course of history. But this was something that he could do, was to champion birthday as a holiday. So it was important to him to be able to do that because he can't really organize rallies and galvanize people in movements, but he did, I mean, in his own way. And he does in his own way, but that was his way of, of doing it. The chorus is easily transportable to any party, but the verses are Stevie making the case for the King holiday. I just never understood how men who died for good could not have a day that was. He said, aside for his recognition. He really lays it out in the lyrics. He says, I can't understand why this doesn't exist. What what's what's wrong with people? Why why doesn't it already exist? You know? So he doesn't really pull punches in, in the lyrics. He just really lays it out. Stevie's syrupy sweet song struck the right political tone to help the King Holiday Bill get over the hump. Sometimes in the struggle for black justice, people feel like they have to ask nicely. The song fits that vibe and helped the cause, but it was quite a battle to make the holiday a law. It took over a decade of perseverance to get the King holiday through Congress and to the president's desk. It was first proposed in the late 60s. It was championed in the 70s by Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm and pushed even more in the early 80s. John Conyers introduced the bill to make King's birthday a holiday the week that he was assassinated. And so that started from 1968. So by the time we got to the 1980s, You know, there were people who had been in the trenches for a dozen years uh, trying to get this law passed and ratified and, you know, to ratchet up the pressure on uh, the Reagan administration. Uh, And so I think that the dynamics that went into King getting a holiday were partly social and cultural in terms of, you know, white people finding him palatable, finding King palatable, but also 
you know, because of the extraordinary effort uh, that had been put into it for such a long time. President Ronald Reagan initially opposed a King holiday, but then Congressman Harold Washington, who would later become the mayor of Chicago, led Illinois to adopt a King holiday. In recognizing Dr. King, this country would do itself honor, both here at home and abroad, by telling everyone that black people have been an integral part of this country and world. We've made our contribution, notwithstanding adverse circumstances, and symbolic of that great people we want to recognize in a national holiday, the one and only, the late Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Nothing short of that will do. After Illinois adopted it, many other states passed legislation to recognize it, thanks to an increase in Black political power in the 80s. There was this wave of Black mayors who were coming into power, coming into office. In the 80s, you had Black mayors in Camden, Little Rock, Chicago, Memphis, Flint, Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York City. And these largely Black city councils. And so as these bill uh, of this movement for King Holiday was picking up momentum was the exact point where there were figures who were sympathetic to it who were increasingly taking the helm of these cities. And certainly in Democratic-controlled states, uh, it came to be seen as the moderate, modern kind of thing to do. That, you know, King, if anybody deserved a holiday, uh, King did. uh, And, you know, that was, I think, uh, the way that it developed and grew and, and generated momentum. And we can't tell the story of how the King holiday came to be without the incredible decades-long efforts of his widow, Coretta Scott King. Making of this holiday, it really was when my mother focused her attention around it that things started to kind of take off a little bit more. That's Dr. Bernice King, daughter of Coretta and Martin. CEO of the King Center and a legacy bearer for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Mrs. Coretta Scott King. She spent the majority of the time from 68 to about 79, really trying to put in the necessary work of getting the King Center off the ground and the headquarters built. And so in 79 is when she really turned all of her attention towards the King holiday and did uh, lobbying in 79. She went and testified before Congress in 1980. She also was sending off letters to state legislators and governors and mayors asking them to recognize and celebrate the birthday. The most important part is she built a groundswell from the local and state level to the federal level. It was a bottom-up movement that got the King holiday recognized and celebrated in cities and states across the country before the federal government officially recognized it because that put pressure on the federal government. It's a strategy that my mother understood, let me get the buy-in of the local and the states. So we literally have ordinances and proclamations from cities and states across the nation because she wrote letters in the 70s to all of the uh, states and cities to recognize Dr. King's birthday, to celebrate it as a birthday. She knew just how to speak to legislators to get her message across. She worked in back rooms. I mean, my mother knew how to work rooms. She knew how to work people. She knew how to cross aisles. She knew how to speak in such a way to people to get them to listen, at least. Can't say that the heart changed, but at least listen. And I think she was able to convince people, you know, that it's okay, it's safe. This is gonna benefit the nation. You know, I think the way it was presented for her 
From her angle, it wasn't about a black holiday. It was about a holiday of a man who represented so much to what we are as citizens of the world first and as, as citizens of the United States of America and our democracy and what all of our founding documents at least meant on paper. And so she knew what language to use with them. My mother was determined she wasn't gonna stop, period. And she believed that she had the ability to win people over. Well, let's put it that way. If we rule her out, there probably would not have been a King holiday. That's Reverend Dr. Barbara Reynolds, who worked with Mrs. King on her memoir, Coretta, My Life, My Love, My Legacy. She had to personally call on every senator in the Senate personally, at least try to uh, all who would receive her. She had to get people like Stevie Wonder. What she had to do was formalize it And this was something they said was unheard of. She did the grassroots work and played the D.C. game and helped reshape King's image so that white lawmakers could feel comfortable voting for a King holiday. It's hard to imagine it now, but toward the end of King's life, the vast majority of white Americans disliked him. A 1968 opinion poll found King had a 75 percent disapproval rating. They thought he was dangerous and divisive. Coretta helped change how people saw King as part of her lifelong commitment to him and to the movement. In the middle of the the Montgomery bus boycott, she was in the room with her child and the bomb blew off the front of the porch. And the next day, Dr. King's father came and said to her, you are going to have to leave uh, Montgomery because... Uh, it's too dangerous. And she said, you just think I'm married to Martin, but I'm married to the movement. With Coretta applying delicate pressure and Stevie's song galvanizing interest and the Republican Party not wanting to appear racist, imagine that, Reagan felt boxed into a political corner as lots of cities and states adopted the King holiday. And so it's one thing to oppose a law. Uh, it's another thing to be willing to veto it. And given... Reagan's already tepid position on South Africa and the fact that the Republican Party had been tainted with these allegations of racism back in the time when they actually cared about that, that the party had been tainted with these allegations of racism, they were not going to stop the bill if it got to the president's desk. And once it had generated that much momentum, literally coming up from grassroots movements and statewide movements across the country, it was very much difficult to stop. Reagan signed it into law in 1983, but at a press conference that year, he showed how shallow his support for the holiday really was. President Senator Helms has been saying on the Senate floor that Martin Luther King Jr. had communist associations, was a communist sympathizer. Do you agree? We'll know in about 35 years, won't we? He's referring to sealed records about King that would not be open for 35 years, but Is this what a president should be saying about King right after turning his birthday into a holiday? Maybe he was a communist. We can't be sure. Wink, wink. This is what people used to call dog whistling. You'd say something that was semi-vague, that signaled something to your political side without overtly saying it. So people of your political mindset heard what you really meant, but you hadn't really said anything. So if someone tried to call you out, there was plausible deniability. I mean, Reagan didn't say King was a communist, 
He said he didn't know if he was a communist. But all that ain't even necessary when it's clear that King was an anti-capitalist who was in favor of reparations. Through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. This is what we are faced with, and this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. Amen. King points out in, in more than one speech, actually, in the aftermath of slavery, uh, when the Homestead Act is passed and all of that land is given uh, to American families, black people are by and large excluded. And so not only does this former slave population have to deal with the exploitation that happened during the years of bondage, they miss out on the economic boom in which the federal government is literally giving away land. And so he talks about that in the context of reparations. And the other thing that he talks about is the universal basic income, saying that you know we have the means uh, to uh, eradicate poverty in the United States, that we should have a universal basic income, a point that no one will fall beneath uh, on the economic ladder. Uh, and so there are all these positions that King took uh, that you know, are not consistent with the very narrow way that we understand him. King, I think, was very much aware of the shortcomings of capitalism and the connections between capitalism and the exploitation of black people and the exploitation of poor people more broadly. Uh, and so uh, that was, in the course of the Cold War, that was enough. Anything short of absolute uh, fanatical uh, flag-waving uh, adherence to capitalism uh, was enough to get you declared to be, you know, a socialist. This is not the king we're talking about each January. Just like Christmas is about presents and materialism and not about Jesus, the January King holiday is about America's Gandhi, colorblindness, and having a dream about a post-racism society. It's not about King's ideas about a society that's more just for poor people. King critiques capitalism and what capitalism has done and the materialism that capitalism has and the vast disparities between the wealthy and the poor, uh, which go straight to the core of the social structure of the United States. You know, that King is not the one that we see most of the time talked about in January, not the one uh, that we see, you know, corporations endorsing and trying to position themselves as, you know, being part of his vision. And yes, we got a King holiday in the 80s as a powerful step forward, acknowledging the importance of a black man and his values. But the nation did nothing to address his values. Did Reagan attack poverty as King would have wanted? Not at all. Black poverty expanded in the 80s, a major step back. Again, black history is one step forward, 
one step back, and the step forward of getting the King holiday enshrined in law was deeply important to a lot of people. It was like a victory for all of us. But that victory was also undercut because a few states dragged their heels like petulant children. The biggest offender was Arizona. Now, a word from our sponsors. First, the governor de-recognized the holiday in the state. I didn't even know that was a thing. Then there was considerable back and forth in the state legislature. Many supported re-recognizing the holiday, and they tried to get it passed, but nothing could get the legislation over the hump. As Arizona dithered, the state lost millions and millions in dollars from tourists. And yet when two referendums were put to Arizona voters in 1990, giving them two options of making the King holiday a law, the voters rejected both. This infuriated a lot of black people. We had finally gotten a day for our king, and Arizona was like, fuck him. You know, because right now I looked at it as being a slap in the face. That's Chuck D. You got one state that says, you know, forget Martin Luther King. I don't care how y'all feel. And, and to me, you know, black people, we're wise, intelligent people, you know, and we should be giving credit where credit's due. Yeah. Was like, well, wait a minute, hold up. That's Hank Shockley, the lead producer for Public Enemy. This is a holiday and it's not national. And so the so the idea was to agitate that process and bring an awareness to it. Because you, you, you have to remember back then there was no black news. Chuck D loved to say rap was black America's CNN, but really public enemy itself fulfilled the mission of publicizing political issues in the community. And the idea of public enemy was to, was to bridge the gap between what we see and what we hear in the community and what we was putting out to the rest of society so that they can feel the same energy that we was feeling. That's when Public Enemy entered the chat with all the subtlety of a Mack truck. This is Sister Soldier. Public Enemy, security of the first world and all aligned forces are traveling west to head off a white supremacist scheme to destroy the national celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. Public Enemy believes that the powers that be in the states of New Hampshire and Arizona have found psychological discomfort in paying tribute to a black man who tried to teach white people the meaning of civilization. Good luck, brothers. Show them what you got. P.E.'s song about the King holiday starts with abrasive, aggressive, badass noise. P.E. was all about pushing you. It was all about agitating you. It wasn't about, you know, making you feel comfortable, making you feel good in your own space about issues. Because I don't think that that was, that's productive. I think what was productive is something that, that physically moves you. And so the sound to me has to represent that vibration. It's white noise from a synthesizer that recalls the sound of chaos. They were one of the first mainstream artists who played with noise in that way. They wanted you to be able to see the music. If you think about all the Public Enemy records, the idea is to create a visual context for you. Because, you know, I'm, I'm from the school of, of visual art, and everything to me has to have some sort of visual approach to it. Chuck is the same way. Chuck is a graphic artist and a mechanical drawer. So we kind of like, that's how we click. And, and so when you think about the sound, it's all about what the sound makes you feel like as opposed to what the sound actually is. 
the sound is not going to give you what the idea and intent of the song is about. It's going to give you the feeling and the emotion of what the song is about. And that's the idea when, that when we go in so that when you're listening to it, you're not listening to it on a, on a one or two dimensional plane. You're listening to it on a three dimensional plane. And then the song adds a church choir ooing. Pray, I pray every day. I do every shot of makeup. Looking for culture, I got my not people to make up. Pushing and shaking the structure, bringing down a Babylon. Hearing the circle, I make it hard for the proud. The hard it's like. Let the church say amen to this preacher who's about to rock the mic. Or it's like there's this Greek chorus standing by watching this madness that Chuck is about to go in on. Shockley said it's a reference to how during the civil rights movement, the church had been part of planning and organizing the movement. The church was was not just a place where we go and worship. It was a battle station. It was a place that we formulate ideas. We, 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 we strategize on what our next missions was going to be. When Chuck comes into the song, you know he's angry as hell, but he's much more in control than angry Ice Cube on Dope Man. Chuck isn't a young man who's roaring at the world. He's a political thinker who's fed up with the political system, rejecting both the Dems and the Republicans. Neither party is mine, the jackets or the elephant. Which is why he's taken matters into his own hands. And he says all of Arizona deserves his ire. What's a smiling face when the whole state's racist? He's saying racism isn't about interpersonal relations. It's not about being nice to people, smiling at people. It's about systems of injustice. So you can smile and be nice to me while perpetuating racism. That's what Chuck's seeing. And after two votes rejecting the King holiday, he's done with Arizona. It all goes to another level with the music video. It aired on MTV like twice because it was so controversial. But now you can YouTube it anytime you want. It's scenes of a King character leading nonviolent marches and sit-ins and being attacked by restaurant workers and ultimately being dropped by an assassin's bullet. This narrative is intercut with scenes of Chuck and his crew, the S1Ws, planning and then carrying out a violent attack on the leadership of Arizona. Some politicians get shot, one gets poisoned, and one gets blown up by a bomb while sitting in his limo after Chuck pushes the button to detonate it. Chuck called the video a revenge fantasy. And basically the, the violence was a uh, was a, 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 a slap in the face of the American system that has been violent to us for what, 400, 500 years? Shockley said they always wanted their videos to be so powerful they could end up getting banned. The first video, which is the Black Steel, it started there. Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos. And since we got banned from there, the whole idea is, okay, well then fuck it. Let's just make more more, more videos that, that get banned. Because, you know, there's a, there's a certain emotion that happens when people dislike something. Because I believe that hate is just as strong as emotion is love. So if you don't like something, you're going to speak strongly about it. And if you love something, you're going to speak strongly about it. So now the idea is how could you create both of those emotions converging at the same time? And that's the, that to me is the idea of what true art should do. A lot of white people got mad about it. 
but they didn't deal with the fact that P.E. was pointing out how the nonviolence of King was met with violence. So a white critique of black political violence rings hollow. They didn't deal with the idea that if nonviolence means being attacked and murdered and not getting political success, then why be nonviolent? Chuck D went on Nightline in 1992 when it was one of the most watched shows in the country. And his video was one of the most controversial pieces of art in the country. And, well, this happened. Uh, the purpose of rap music or any kind of music, I feel, is to raise dialogue. And the reason I raise dialogue on this particular ish, issue, because me as a black person has been tired of being dis, disrespected, especially last year when the Bush administration kind of like went into the Persian Gulf on January 15th. That's what encouraged me to write the song. Wait, and, wait, wait, you, you're, you're, getting, you're getting awful far along for me here. I thought you wrote the song because you were upset about Arizona not making the Martin well, Luther King birthday a holiday and you thought you'd make a very strong point. What was the combination? I mean, not having a um, King holiday in Arizona and at the same time going into the Persian Gulf, going into war, a nonviolent person at the same time, Arizona not having this holiday spurred me to write the song. Well, it, it, it would right seem in the minds of a lot of people a bit of a stretch to go from there to uh, to blowing away the governor of Arizona and some state officials. Well, basically, I think this should be a fair place in America. But, you know, you have to realize in the video we set a scenario which can happen in the next two or three years of a David Duke type character going to win the governorship or all these are fictional characters in Arizona, corrupt officials, part of other organizations saying no. We will not have a King holiday. Basically also pointing out that there has been so much hypocrisy and a big conspiracy against every single black leader that has come out, violent or nonviolent, or whatever they want to call them. Matter of fact, in the video, I'm making a statement against various things. The holiday that we celebrate in America, the 500 years of genocide on Columbus Day, and yet and still we're going to have a, a state that's not going to have a King holiday? That's ridiculous. At their heyday in the 80s, Chuck was the political activist that hip-hop needed. There was no one in popular music better than P.E. at making powerful, in-your-face political songs, the sort of music Malcolm X would have made if he were alive in the 80s. Where Stevie was like the son of the civil rights movement with an insistence on acceptance and nonviolence, Public Enemy was the son of the black power movement. They were going to get it done by any means necessary. In these two songs, Happy Birthday, and By the Time I Get to Arizona, Stevie and Chuck D represent two sides of the black liberation struggle. The supposedly good nonviolent protester who's politely asking for justice based on a moral appeal, and the aggressive, unapologetic protester demanding black rights right now, who's willing to be violent if that's what's needed. Historically, revolutions are bloody. That's Malcolm X. Oh, yes, they are. They have never had a bloodless revolution or a nonviolent revolution. That don't happen even in Hollywood. You don't have a revolution in which you love your enemy. And you don't have a revolution in which you are begging the system of exploitation to integrate you into it. Revolutions overturn systems. Revolutions destroy systems. A revolution is bloody, but America is in a unique position. She's the only country in history 
in a position actually to become involved in a bloodless revolution. All she's got to do is give the black man in this country everything that's doing. Everything. Can the black protester who's willing to be violent truly be said to be violent? If someone is beating you up and you fight back, are you being violent? No, you're defending yourself. Well, after centuries of violence being visited on black America, is violence in the name of the fight to get justice for black people, is that actually violence? Or is it self-defense? We've had centuries of slavery and domestic terrorism by white civilians like lynchings and white mobs burning black towns like Tulsa and Rosewood and political assassinations and state-sanctioned violence by police and the economic violence. And how many times do black people have to be punched in the face before fighting back is considered self-defense? In a world where violence upon black people is constant and nonviolence may not work, to demand that we be nonviolent when we protest is offensive. And is it effective? Will white supremacy lift its boot from our neck if we ask nicely and say please and don't raise our voice? No, it won't. As Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. And these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows. Wow. For a revolution to truly change society, it often requires violence because a real revolution needs the power system to be afraid of continuing the status quo. The dichotomy of nonviolent versus violent is a false one when getting real change requires both methods. The 80s stands out for an absence of towering black leaders fighting on behalf of the community, where the 60s had King and Malcolm X and the Black Panthers and recent years saw the rise of Black Lives Matter. The 80s lacked those epic prophetic activist kings and queens. As we continued to combat some of the same issues that King and Malcolm spoke about, we looked to them as models of how to fight, which is part of why the image of King was so important. The enshrinement of the King holiday confirmed that he was a crucial American. And in a way, having a holiday celebrating the birthday of a black hero signaled that we were crucial Americans, which is why it was so important to win that political battle and why it was so infuriating when some refused to recognize King. Well, long before the King holiday, we already had a holiday celebrating the birthday of a global black hero. But some people still don't realize that Jesus was black. Sure, Jan. While 80s black America luxuriated in the glory of a King holiday, we also battled a monsoon of trauma because black history, as we've said before, is always one step forward, one step back. In the 80s, the war on drugs was launched, and that led to a steep rise in the number of black people who were incarcerated. And that had a devastating impact on black America. I'm Torre, and this was Being Black, the 80s. The next episode of this show is already available, and soon we'll be back with Being Black, the 70s. 
This podcast was produced by me, Torre, and Jesse Cannon, and scored by Will Brooks with additional production by Brian Demiglio, an executive production from Regina Griffin. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Griot Black Podcast Network. Please tell a friend and check out the other shows on the Griot Black Podcast Network, including Blackest Questions with Chrissy Greer, Dear Culture with Panama Jackson, The Griot Daily with Michael Harriet, and Writing Black with Maisha Kai. 